And welcome to this month's edition of Slugger TV. In this episode, we're going to be looking at our pathway out of lockdown, uh, the impact of the comings of her on Boris Johnson, and the new society that we face after COVID-19. And to go through these topics, we have the political commentators, Julianne Corr and Tim Kearns. So Tim, I want to start with you and, uh, and our first topic. Um, obviously, Boris Johnson's had a bit of a ragged um, month, uh, obviously with the Dominic Cummings affair. First off, what did you make of one, the media reaction to it, and then two, did any of that have cut through with the public? Well, I think in terms of the media reaction, uh, I think it was it was glorious fodder for for certainly the left wing press. I mean, it was the Guardian and the Daily Mirror who broke the story, and I think they could they they, they got very giddy with excitement. Uh, it's not often you see a special advisor, of course, in the in the grounds of uh, Number Ten giving a press conference. And I think that's something that's going to be the the abiding uh, image of that. That for the first time ever, we saw some someone. Um, it's been like the time Alistair Campbell stormed the Channel 4 studio way back in, in the early 2000s. It was a moment like that. It's so rare for the special advisor to become the story. Uh, and I think the difficulty for Boris is that he never really managed to shift the narrative away from Dominic Cummings being the story. So, so dominant is Cummings in number 10 and so dominant is Cummings behind the scenes that he, he just hasn't been able to shift that story. Boris could have uh, shown some strength in the Dominic Cummings affair, if he had to come out immediately, sacked him, uh, or, or moved him to one side at the very least, I think uh, he could have come out uh, looking quite strong in the whole thing, and I think it would have done uh, him the world of good. But the fact that he dithered and dallied, and it seemed that Dominic Cummings was the one who was writing all the press statements that Boris was just dutifully reading um, at the podium and the coronavirus updates on, on a daily basis, it looked very weak from Boris's point of view. And I think it really fed into the narrative that Boris is someone who deals in the immediate. He's not a long-term planner. He's not a long-term strategist. He just deals with what's popular today. Mm-hmm. I think I found in that narrative that he needs Dominic Cummings uh, there behind him to do that long-term strategy because he's just incapable of doing it. Look, any analysis of a long-term strategy for Boris Johnson would have led to the conclusion that Dominic Cummings had to go. Unfortunately, Boris wasn't capable of doing that that, that for himself. Okay, and Julianne, what did you make when, of course, it hit the headlines and, of course, it probably didn't help that it hit the headlines just as uh, lockdown fatigue was probably uh, on the rise in the UK because um, people were more than two months in at that stage. So what did you make of it? I think from a human aspect, I could understand Dominic Cummings travelling out to his, his family's home and wanting to be surrounded by people that he loved. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I haven't contracted COVID-19, thankfully, but I'm sure for those who have, it's a very scary time, you know, with the, the narratives that's in the press and the realities. What we do know about it is that it, it shows no mercy, um, you know, that it can take your life. And I'm sure that was his priority. Like most of us, we put our family first. Um, I think I agree with Tim. Well, I do agree rather than think. I do agree with Tim. Um, Boris could have come out much stronger in how he handled it. But I think that like any other employee, Dominic Cummings was uh, should have been afforded due process. I think that would have been the right thing to do, perhaps suspend him with leave pending an investigation rather than it playing out so publicly as it did in the press. Um, I think there could have been an acknowledgement. Yes, this is quite serious. Yes, we understand that this tarnishes our reputation. Um, we understand how this looks to the public and we're looking into it um, and then releasing a further statement down the line rather mm-hmm. than allowing Dominic Cummings to go out into the press in this bizarre scenario where he was able to speak from the mm-hmm. garden of number 10 um, and address the nation. Um mm-hmm which has never been done before, but um, it was totally bizarre. And I think that um, 
the government failed to, to follow its own advice and guidance that it gives to other employers on due process. And I think yeah. that that would have been the most appropriate thing to do. And through that job with due process, whether or not that what he had done, um, if he had done everything that he was alleged to have done, um, you know, a grievance or not a grievance, sorry, a disciplinary process followed mm-hmm. in that regards rather than making any sort of rash judgments based on my own feelings um about not being able to see my own family um, <laughs> and the sacrifices that I've made personally too yeah and what about the uh, uh, Tim just go back to you obviously you referenced the press conference that he did I mean mm-hmm. that, and that, that is pretty unprecedented there and mm-hmm. Julianne's talked about that as well like a special advisor they're meant to be in the background you know I remember Andy Coulson's uh famous line when he resigned as David Cameron's head of press, you know, when the spokesman needs a spokesman, mm. you know, the spokesman needs to go. Yeah. Um, it, just what did you make of that? Because obviously you've seen this uh, up close as well. What did you make of, of, of a spad going out and sitting in the Rose Garden doing a press conference? Well, it's certainly unprecedented, but I think in many ways um, it was quite clever and probably gave breathing space for Dominic Cummings to stay. Here's what he did. He took every single question from every single journalist, from every single newspaper, and and just took every single question in turn. Once the sort of formal part of the press conference had ended, Dominic Cummings then took more questions from Peston, took more questions from the BBC, was prepared to sit there and take every question. I think the strategy was pretty clear. You know, Dominic Cummings has answered all your questions. What more is there left to say on this issue? And I think as a strategy, I think it probably bought bought breathing space. And I think as a strategy, it probably allowed him to stay. Uh, But I do think that there was damage done. And I think clearly you picked that up in the polling where Boris Johnson's personal rating, you know, he's now 30 points behind uh, Starmer. Uh, in those ratings, although I think we see some good news for Boris Johnson over the weekend. In the polling, it seems that the, the bleeding has stopped, that it's it's flatlined for him in terms of his personal approval rating. And I think over the weekend, we saw in the polls that were coming out that he's when the question is asked, who do you think makes the better prime minister, Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson's coming out on top, albeit within the uh, margin of error. And I think for the Conservative Party as well, I mean, they're, they're still you know, five, six, seven points ahead of the Labour Party in the polls. So I think it's not not being fatal damage to Boris Johnson. I don't think we're talking about ERM Mark II or anything like that. I think as Brexit starts to emerge uh, after lockdown is dealt with, I think as that starts to emerge as, as an issue and Boris gets back on the familiar territory, it'll be interesting to see where the polling numbers are then and what damage is being done to him. So I think it's, it's a little early to be starting to write Boris Johnson's political obituary. But I think once he gets beyond lockdown, once that's handled, once Brexit comes to the fore, it'll be interesting to see how he recovers uh, in terms of the, of the polling ground that he's lost. Okay, and Julianne, um, obviously, um, uh, you know, for for a special advisor, um, they're not meant to be distractions and they're not meant to be uh, uh, dominant personalities within the government, but yet we have seen a number of articles of people who would normally be supportive of the Conservative Party, people like Tim Montgomery, who have come out and, and, and disagreed with Boris and saying that, no, Dominic Cummings does, in some respects, wield too much power in that government and and he should have been uh, sacked. Do you think that there is any enduring damage, really, uh, within the Conservative Party uh, for Boris Johnson, or, or will it be, as Tim says, uh, has it pretty much flattened out and can he can he recover? I think it's hard to disagree with Tim's analysis. I think he's, he's on the money there um, with regards to his own reputation within his, his, his own fold, so to speak. I would say locally in Northern Ireland, you know, he's went from hero to zero 
Um, you know, um, and that's obviously you know the, the reemergence of Brexit and that conversation again, um, and obviously then his response to Dominic Cummings. Although uh, we did find initially um, there was quite within the local community there was quite a few that were quite vocal in their support of mm-hmm. Boris Johnson and, and in support of Dominic Cummings. But again, that takes back to my earlier point about being human. We can all relate in some capacity just how difficult this has been for everyone, irrespective of their position or the power that they use. Um, so I, I think that there was some sort of relatability with him at that stage, but obviously the re-emergence of Brexit and the conversations that are taken between uh, the EU and the United Kingdom, and as that starts to turn its focus back onto Northern Ireland and what that's going to look like, um, I think that contributes to Boris's demise, so to speak, um, in Northern Ireland and his popularity, particularly amongst the unionist community. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Tim, just going back to to the um, uh, to, to the polling argument, I know you've referenced some of them there, and, and the, most of the polls are showing a five, six, seven percentage point lead, which is down, but still, albeit yeah. the Conservatives would still uh, would still win and win the election. That is four and a half years away. Um, uh, is this a sense of Keir Starmer, uh, an approval of Keir Starmer's performances in places like the House of Commons and Prime Minister's questions, or is it really more a reaction against Boris and a perceived um, mishandling of this of the situation? Well, I think there's certainly a perception that the Conservative government have, have mishandled lockdown. You know, there's always a bounce when a new leader comes in, and I think undoubtedly Keir Starmer is is benefiting from that bounce. And I think undoubtedly, if you compare his performances at the dispatch box with uh, the performances of, pre- of his predecessor at the dispatch box, he looks much more polished. I think the empty House of Commons obviously helps him because Boris is a populist who's wanting to rabble rise. I mean, Julianne references Boris's position in Northern Ireland. Can't imagine a DUP conference with people standing in their chairs, whooping and wallering and waving union flags now. Uh, Boris Johnson was to come, so you know, but but that's what Boris loves. Been the backstop, he shouts at the DUP conf- conference when he's absolutely out there, no intention of, of doing that. And I think I think that that's the core issue. Boris Johnson needs the crowd. He needs he needs the the people to, to whip up in their frenzy. And I think you can see at Prime Minister's questions, he, he's struggling a little bit uh, with that. So. You know, it, it, this is all going to play out. I mean, what sort of leader is Keir Starmer going to be? He seems to be much more popular than what his party is, and so can he bridge that gap? Can he? Can he make this a presidential election in four years' time? You know, who do you want to be prime minister, Starmer or Johnson? And I think if he can do that, I think he could. He could. On, he could cause Boris some trouble. But look, you know, we're in the realms of, of long-term speculation here. Four and a half years. You know, May, what is it, 2024, uh, mm-hmm. before our next election? Like, you know, there's a long, long, long uh, stretch of road to go between now and then. Okay, and Julianne, just to wonder what your early um, uh, um, impressions are of the clashes between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer in the House of Commons and, and what you make of him in his first weeks as Labour leader. Have you ever watched The Good Wife? Yes. I have been binging on that through lockdown and I don't know if it's because of that and my adoration for um, Alicia, the lead character that's in it. Maybe that's why I am so impressed by Stormer. Um, He's caught my attention, but as Tim has said, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. There is a long period to go ahead here. He's certainly caught attention, um, but whether he can win hearts and minds is four Mm -hmm. years to be determined. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, So let's move on to our next topic. And uh, it's looking at 
lockdown and coming out of it. Um, uh, in every previous program, we've been talking about either lockdown being continued or either it being tightened up. But now we're actually getting signs from the executive now of things being uh, relaxed. Uh, we heard announcements um, uh, from Diane Dodds, the economy minister, about bars and restaurants being able to reopen in July. We have seen you can now form support bubbles um, for people um, outside your household. We can now meet people up to up to six people outside and you can go for a drink in your back garden and you know so on and so forth for the first time in, in months. Tim, um, uh, how do you think the executive number one is handling the announcements, the rolling announcements that are now expected of them, because they seem to get good plaudits about going into the lockdown. How do you think they're handling the, the coming out of it now? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, if we go back to the start of the lockdown, I mean, we were all arguing about education then, and it doesn't seem that we've moved very much further. We're still arguing about what's going to happen with schools now. I think the issues in and around pubs and shops and hotels and businesses, that, that, that's all seemingly taken care of itself. And I think the difficulty is, is really this piece on education. It's not just a Northern Ireland problem. It's a problem we're seeing across the UK. I mean, somehow, Boris Johnson, to go back to him for a second, uh, tried to open schools at the start of June. The teachers' unions dragged their heels in and somehow Boris Johnson got, got the blame for that um, when it wasn't really his fault. And I think we're seeing exactly the same thing here. Uh, teachers' unions are reluctant to go back to get people back to school. And look, this economy is not going to open until schools and childcare are in place. It's going to be impossible for the economy to fully open until that happens. So we, we need to get that um, that, that situation start, started out. When are schools going to go back? How are they going to go back? Are kids going to be able to go back full time or, or not? And we, I think we need, we needed, I think a little more bravery from from Peter Weir on this. You know, the, the announced schools going back on the seventeenth of August in a Zoom meeting with a couple of headmasters wasn't really a great way uh, of getting confidence within the sector for parents or for teachers or for pupils that they're going to get the education that they need and deserve. I think. You know, until that building block is put in place, we can make all the announcements we want about pubs and bars and shops and everything. Uh, and it, we've got this bizarre situation at the minute where, you know, zoos and pubs and hotels are all going to open. And we don't even know when kids are going back to school. But the bizarre uh, thing right now where kid, we can go on, take our kids in roller coasters, but we're not going to be able to, to drop them off at school. And it just makes absolutely and utterly no sense. Uh, and I think all education ministers whatever part of these islands they're in, need to get that piece sorted out. And I think they're all doing a pretty bad job at sorting it out. It's not just a Peter Weir problem. It's a problem for, for everybody as they try and negotiate with teachers' unions and this. Look, the schools need to get back and they need to, we need a clear roadmap as to how that's going to happen. And I'm just saying too much dithering and dallying at the minute. Well, with regards to the education, what Tim's just said, you know, it, again, it's hard to disagree with him that we need a roadmap, we need a strategy and schools need to go back, but not before their time. And I think it's really important to remember that the teachers today are also going through this pandemic and they have been working. School work is coming home. I work in the education sector myself. I'm not a teacher. I'm not that smart. Um, but I'm, I'm supporting students that are going through their vocational education and trying to catch up academically. Um, and the work is being done. It is being distributed. Teachers are engaging with children and with their students um, throughout all the primary ages, right through to the post-primary um, and obviously into the training sector as well. So I think we also need to remember, you know, the teachers' rights and their, their workers' rights as well, you know, 
they they aren't on some sort of period of extended holiday you know mm. they are working they're also adapting like us at home they also have children at home uh, you know or maybe elderly relatives that need taken care of or need to go and do the shopping for them because they can't go out themselves everybody is going through this pandemic nothing about this is normal so I do think yes schools need to go back but not before their time and I think we should be making our target for September so long as it is safe and the scientific evidence supports that and mm. that we can bring it back in a controlled environment so that teachers feel safe returning to the workplace that parents feel that their children are safe going in and also receiving their children home too and mm. um, I do think it's a little bit bizarre that we're talking about the opening of the pubs and clubs and we're not talking about you know the the school is more uh, more publicly um when Peter Weir had done the, the Zoom call and Sammy Wilson came out with his uh, sudden blunders or blunt thunder speeches you know about you know needing to get back and you know that there were unsettling people and unsettling parents I know quite a lot of people particularly within my own family, who are very keen for their kids' education. Obviously, they're going into primary mm -hmm. seven, and some of them are in key years where they're going to be doing their GCSEs. And their education is absolutely paramount to help those children climb the social ladder so that they're not held back a year and obviously all of those concerns. But their primary concern is the safety for their children also, and they want to know that when they do go back, they're going back safely, that the teachers that are there are safe too. Um, and I think that, although we're starting to see information being released um, with regards to the R rate, the reproduction rate, I think more information with regards to the scientific data, you know, in terms of what helps not just inform those decisions, but the decisions that have been made, how we marry those two sets of figures up that yes, it is safe because of X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. and instill confidence in people and trust in people uh, or give people an opportunity to trust you so they can come out of their homes and feel safe doing so. Yeah, and Tim, uh, obviously going back to that, I mean, you're looking at issues around face masks and what circumstances do you wear them? Um, and also, you know, the washing the hands message and so on that seems to have kind of fallen away. I mean, back in March, you know, I think everyone's hands were breaking out in eczema because we were all washing them so much. But, you know, that message, that message seems to be, um, it seems to have fallen slightly down now. And obviously we're moving on to debates about face masks and the effectiveness of those. But if we're going forward and if we are going to reopen all these social settings, you know, we're going to have to have to know this, you know, about, you know, uh, face coverings and so on and so forth. So what, what do you think about that messaging? Well, like I think it's desperately difficult for the government. Let's not forget, we've never faced a pandemic like this before. We've never faced this disease before. We don't really know how it reacts. And I think we have to have a certain sympathy for our politicians because it's not as if there is a scientific consensus on this. It's not as if there's one piece of scientific advice and anybody who deviates from that is moving out of what is accepted scientific practice. Scientists are disagreeing on this. Scientists are, are trying to find what this disease is, how it's best treated, how to react to it. So I think we can very quickly and very easily condemn our politicians and, and, and complain and criticise them. But I think they're dealing with a very difficult situation and that there is different scientific advice. Does a face mask uh, help? Does it not? Is a face mask only uh, useful for um, you to protect other people, not protect yourselves? I mean, there, there's different scientific data on this. How, how the droplets, um, how they propelled in air. I mean, do, does ordinary conversation do that? Does it not? Can you then go to one meter? Do you have to stay at two? And scientists are divided on this, and politicians are, have to make, are having to make political calls on incomplete scientific data. So I think we can criticise them, but. They've got a pretty tough job and, you know, only time will tell whether they made the right calls or not. Okay. And Julianne, uh, just on that, on the messaging that we're hearing, because obviously the, the more you open things up, the more convoluted the messaging is going to become because obviously you're, you're, we're in so many different social scenarios. So what, what are you making of that uh, in, as we're moving on? 
I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm doing at home. So I have agreed, although that we're now able to meet in back gardens, etc. I throw my hands up. I haven't. I haven't done it yet. I'm too frightened. <laughs> um, so we have agreed that this Thursday afternoon, we're going to go to my mother's back garden and we'll see my mum. And on Sunday, we're going to go down and see my wife's father for Father's Day. We have said that our contact will be for 45 minutes. This is a full military operation. Um, my wife and I will have face masks on. And I have two, two and a half year olds. They're almost three um, who don't understand the concept of social distancing, who don't understand why they can't kiss, hug, climb, wreck granny's house you know or our grandest house for that matter you know so this is going to sound crazy but I've seen people getting hazmat suits I'm not putting my child into a hazmat suit and they're certainly not going to wear a mask either but they absolutely love their Tyrannosaurus Rex and their Stegosaurus so I have ordered two dinosaur costumes which cover the children's hands <laughs> cover them head to toe but expose their face so they're able to read facial reactions and we're able to read theirs. Um, but I also have a pregnant sister. She's 24, 24 weeks pregnant. Um, so there is, there's extended risk. My mum works in the COVID-19 hospital. She works in the Mater Hospital in Belfast. So there's all of those little things that we have to consider. But the one good thing is that because my family is in healthcare, they're trained in infection control. Mm -hmm. So it's their responsibility to keep themselves safe. I will, as best as I possibly can, keep them safe while they're in my company. I will wear a mask. Um, I also have two children to keep safe. Mm -hmm. So we've we've uh, agreed that we'll have hugs at waist height, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, and maybe I'm just an over-paranoid, over-protective mother, but I would much rather at this Christmas that I have everybody around my table yeah. and have been that crazy mother mm -hmm. and have everybody there. Um, yeah. And and so we have been, we've been moving a step behind the government's mm -hmm. advice. And when they eventually say, yes, you can go into one another's homes, I know that my mother will be at my front door, but she's not getting in. Um, <laughs> she's not getting in. And the reason being is I want to move at a week to two weeks behind only because, you know, we're moving into something new. We really don't know an awful lot about this virus. We really don't know too much about its spread. So when we do move to coming into each other's homes, she'll come into mine because it's easier for her to protect herself when she's in mm. my home and my children's hands touching surfaces, et cetera, et cetera, than it is for me to go to my mummy's hands. And if we have the virus, leave it everywhere. Because let's mm -hmm. face it, kids are touching the remote, they're touching the TV, they're pulling the curtains off, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we're running this pretty much like a military operation at home. But I think there'll be an awful lot of people that will actually follow the same. Um, mm -hmm. You know, really want it, very keen to move on, but are, are very cautious about it too. And Tim, just on that, how do you think, I mean, do, do you think the people's approach, obviously Julianne's taking a conservative approach to the lockdown, but are you seeing more and more people just turn around and going, look, we've done our bit, we did we did the 9, 10, mm -hmm. 11 weeks, and we've done our bit, and, and that's it, uh, and that's it, it's time to kind of get back to normal, or what, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think the, the, the feeling is lockdown's over. I mean, our, my family's not quite like Julianne's. I can't keep my man die out of our garden. I, I want to go back to lockdown, get rid of them. But um, no, I do, I do think, you know, lockdown's, it, it's slowly grinding in. But I think the more amazing thing is that people stayed in lockdown for so long. Whenever we're back at the start of March, they're saying we need to delay lockdown for as long as possible. Why were they saying that? Because we don't think people will follow it and people will keep the rules. By and large, I... You know, you know, make up a statistic, but like 90% of people by and large kept to the rules. And there's a small number of people who weren't keeping to the rules. I've noticed, um, 
Well, I've been uh, taking a walk through the same park every evening and I've noticed uh, more and more people gathering on the, in the common areas, particularly young people, huge am- amounts of young people who aren't from uh, the same households who have clearly been gathering together. Like, I understand that. You, there's no way you're going to be able to keep uh, young people from meeting together. And the fact that they haven't done that for 10 to 12 weeks, I think has been, has been quite amazing on, the, on their part. And as the weather's been getting better, I've been noticing more and more people out, more and more people breaking lockdown. Like, I think, you know, as we see the, you know, the protests that have been gathering uh, over the last number of weeks, and we, we've seen people go out driving more as shops have opened more, that I think the mentality is this lockdown's done. It's now how do we safely get back to opening up the economy again? And I think that's the key question. What damage has, has there been done to the economy and how quickly can we recover from that damage? Like, you know, there is a fine balance between, you know, keeping the, the virus at bay, but that also needs to be balanced with, you know, we need an economy to come back to. We need a, you know, we need um, uh, economic growth to come back to once, once this pandemic's over. So it's, it's keeping those two things in tension. I think where, where most people are at now, it's like lockdown's done. Let's safely get back to our jobs and let's safely get back um, to work and let's safely try and get this economy kickstarted again. Okay. So Tim nicely segues into um, our next topic about what is it we're actually coming back to. Some of the economic figures are coming out now. The UK economy uh, uh, contracted by 20% in the month of April alone. The UK is projected to have a 12% contraction uh, in this current year. We're facing an almighty recession. Uh, uh, from this, obviously, Northern Ireland will will have its impacts from that. So I'm going to go to Julianne. What are the lessons that we're going to? Because everyone's talking about lessons. Maybe we'll we'll spend more time with our families. Maybe we'll we'll be more into community as we try and deal with the economic uh, consequences of this. Do you think that that's what's going to happen, or is it just going to be as soon as you know? If, if you look at uh, Premark reopening or Zara reopening, the queues of people outside, you just want to get in. Are we just going to fall, f- fall back into where we where we left off at the start of March? I don't think we can. Um, and I think that that is because of the regulations that are being put in place in shops. So whilst the stores are open, whilst the business is open again, nothing is normal. Your shopping experience is going to be very different to what it usually is. Um, you know, and, that, and that's owing to the regulations that are there. You know, this is easing back in. Um, I think there's going to be... Um, quite a focus on, you know, you'd mentioned there about, you know, contracting. I'm sorry, I couldn't help but think of actual contractions and giving birth to something new. And that's pretty much what's going to happen with our economy. There's going to be pain felt by everyone in some capacity. But uh, interestingly, yesterday I'd read in the Daily Mirror, I think it was, that they had mentioned um, uh, Scotland was looking to do universal basic income. Um, and similarly here in Northern Ireland, we've seen the launch of a, a new lobbyist group that's looking towards bringing mm-hmm. a universal basic income here in Northern Ireland. And I think that those conversations have always happened. I mean, Labour administrations have always flirted with the idea, you know, when, when it was their time. And similarly, a number of the politicians here in Northern Ireland have certainly flirted with the idea as a as a um, temporary recovery measure uh, based on the pandemic. But I think something more long term, more sustainable, where we're looking at our economy and turning it into sort of a what you might want to call it, a social economy. Um, you know, the benefits of that, and I'll not rehash them all or, or throw them all out, you know, but some of the benefits of moving to that style of economy would help us improve growth in terms of the industry and in terms of jobs, mm-hmm. uh, bringing down um, any unemployment rates or our unemployment rates, improving um, the cost in terms of healthcare. You know, obviously, if you have a universal basic income, there's going to be family members and elders that are able to look after uh, mm-hmm. those who are elderly at home, vulnerable, and similarly, the childcare issue. Um, you know, I know that in my job, I work 40 hours a week you know if a universal basic income was available to me 
I would certainly be dropping my hours to 20 hours a week so that I could be at home more with my children and caring for my children and less reliance on childcare. Um, but I would still be spending as much, if not more, um, you know, on the back of the universal basic income. And obviously the company doesn't lose that productivity. Uh, the productivity mm-hmm. still remains, but there's a job opening then for someone who in similar circumstances to me would be able to avail of those mm-hmm. 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are there are going to be changes, but I think there's going to be a, a lot of economic uh, conversations about what our economic model looks like moving forward. I don't think that we're going to be able to rely on what we've had. Things aren't mm-hmm. going to change. Yeah, I think we're going to have to get creative. Um, if we're going to particularly get our hospitality sector uh, running, we have to get creative, you know, thinking about things like uh, what they're doing in, in France of shutting roads. I mean, can you imagine if you were to close the Armour Road from the Aragal down to the big house and uh, get some sort of covering on a Friday and Saturday night and, and in the good weather that we've got now for the next two or three months, what a great what a great uh, experience that could be. Or similarly, you could do that in the, on the Upper Newton Arch Road, you know, between the Point and, and Horatio Todd's. I mean, if we can get if we can get, you know, and obviously those are all the restaurants in between uh, that could the, the, those two pubs not not just for people to go out and drink but I mean the restaurants on those two roads could move out into the street and, and I think if we do things that are creative like that I think we could actually see uh, a much more social economy not the social economy Julie Anne's talking about but I mean more social society uh, emerging out of this where we've got creative solutions where people are being encouraged back out in different ways mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do different things and I think you know that that's clearly the sort of ideas we need to be looking at you know but are our politicians are our councillors and Belfast City Council are they up for the job I don't know let's see okay I'll give you I'll give you one brief final comment on that uh, well, though our, our councils are just as diverse as our assembly is, you know, we've got supporters now, we've got detractors, but we never meet in the middle. It's Northern Ireland. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, and that brings us to the end of the programme. Can I thank you both so much for, take, uh, for taking the time to go through all these issues? So, uh, Julianne Cor Johnson, Tim Kearns, you can keep up to date with everything in the meantime on sluggerhotel.com. Thank you very much for watching.